Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian, informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com. Hi, everyone. Um, Nice to have you all join us. There's been some concerns and discussions over the years with chelation therapy. What I want to do is really talk about what are some of those issues with chelation therapy and um, what you should know as a patient and how it's evaluated, how it's assessed, and what kind of cost-benefit analysis you should do if you're concerned about chemical overload, how to evaluate it, how to measure it, and how to determine what the right strategy is. So the basic model, if you're not familiar with chelation therapy, it's really involved with um, trying to get rid of heavy metal or toxic load. So when you look at how the body works, um, chemicals have the ability to load in our body. And um, there's different types of chemicals. There are chemicals that we can break down chemicals into two types. Some chemicals that cannot be cleared out through our own clearance pathways, primarily the liver. They call that biotransformation. And normally when we get exposed to chemicals, Things like, let's say, bisphenol A from plastic products or fire retardants from you know, furniture, um, various different types of uh, chemicals and using laundromat soaps and chemicals that are used for cleaning agents. We're getting exposed to chemicals all the time. And there are a group of chemicals that our body has the ability to um, eliminate with just uh, our biotransformation pathways. And those are not a major concern for us other than we have to have a healthy um, nutritional status to support biotransformation. Now, the conversion of these chemicals from our body through this through biotransformation takes place primarily in the liver, but also in the gut. So the microbiome has bacteria that also are involved with biotransformation, just like the liver. And the goal of uh, this clearance of chemicals is called what's called phase one and phase two pathway. And for the most part, there's different names for this biotransformation pathway. Well, we can have something like methylation when they add what's called a methyl group. That's where B12 folic acid is really critical for them. Sulfation is another critical pathway to clear out chemicals and toxins from our body and even hormones. Sulfation requires sulfur amino acids. Um, so diets really high in sulfur and glutathione and different types of sulfur-based vegetables really provide us the substrates for sulfation. Acetylation is a two-carbon uh, clearance pathway that requires lots of Again, B12, folate, uh, B vitamins. Um, glucuronidation is another pathway. Glucuronidation really requires us to have a steady supply of blood glucose to then help make this thing called glucuronic acid to help us clear out different toxins. So um, when you look at our biotransformation pathways, there are substrates we need um, from a nutritional uh, diet point of view that really help us clear out toxins and chemicals. And antioxidants play a significant role in the first phase one pathway of this reaction. So in an ideal scenario, when we get exposed to chemicals, we have our liver, which has these biotransformation pathways to clear out chemicals. Um, 
in the gut and uh, we have a diverse bacteria and we have lots of different bacteria and some of these bacteria in our microbiome help with sulfation, some help with acetylation and then we clear out these, these normal toxic compounds. And those are for chemicals that our body can clear out. Now there are certain chemicals our body cannot metabolize out through biotransformation and those are for example heavy metals. Things like mercury, things like lead, things like arsenic. And the, the reason that these are such of a concern for us and really classified as toxic chemicals is because they're chemicals that our body cannot clear out for us. So there are chemicals that are unhealthy for us, um, like benzene from cigarette smoke. And, and, and chemicals like benzene, we can't clear out. Um, and it can increase our risk for various health conditions. And then there's there's certain chemicals that can really cause significant and serious disease like lead and mercury because their buildup then creates what are called free radicals. And those free radicals start to destroy tissue. And they've been linked with all types of diseases uh, in the peer-reviewed literature, um, things such as neurodegenerative diseases, um, things like learning disorders. Um, you know, lots of studies have shown children exposed to lead in early, uh, early development have significant uh, brain developmental issues. So um, we know that toxic metals are concerned. Now where chelation comes into this big picture is that chelation therapy is when someone takes some type of agent, um, whether it's oral or it's an IV, to bind to chemicals that our body cannot clear out through the liver and gut, these so-called biotransformation pathways. And um, the most common chelators that are used that are by prescription are something called DM, DMSA, DMPS, and EDTA. And EDTA was the initial chelator, then they went to DMSA, and then they started to move more towards DMPS. And one of the concerns with chelators are, is that and the way chelators work, by the way, before I get into that, the way chelators work is they bind to the ionic charge of a chemical, which then allows the binding of these chelating agents to it to then be able to be cleared out of the body through our gut and liver and urinary pathways and fecal pathways and so forth. So the goal, the goal of the chelator is to get toxic chemical like lead or arsenic and mercury, have something attached to it, bind to it, or bind to it, and that'll help with chelation. And then chelation can be, and this chelating process of binding to heavy metals with a chelating agent um, can take place uh, in the cell. They call that intracellular, or outside the cell, extracellular. And all three of the chelating agents have been shown to have some degree of effect. Now, the fact that they can remove chemical agents um, within our cells, they also have the potential to induce what's called redistribution. So for example, you go on a chelating agent and then the heavy metals you're trying to clear out, some come out, but also some of them get pushed into other tissues. So in the toxicology literature, one of the concerns with chelation therapy is that this, this model of redistribution. And um, the redistribution models um, have only been done on animal studies because they have to actually um, sacrifice the study animal to see if when they went under chelation, that those toxic compounds actually ended up into different tissues in our organ systems compared to those that didn't have those chelating agents. So um, we know that in animal research, which is the only way you can do it, there's no way you can have a human decide to be in a study where they are going to go on chelation and then have their biopsies of their tissues, like their brain and their organs and their bone and their tissues, uh, determine if it's redistributed into actual tissue, not what's in the, in the blood. So um, the purpose of chelation is, is to clear out these heavy metals, but the chances that it can, we can redistribute to these other tissues. Now, 
the question has become, okay, well, so what do you do? Well, so for example, if you're stuck with high, having high amounts of lead or arsenic or mercury, I mean, there's definitely some clear indications that, that that's not a good thing and that can increase your um, environmental and toxic load. And if it increases your environmental and toxic load, um, that, that can be a contributing factor to, let's say, a chronic and chronic condition. And some of those have already been uh, reported in the literature. When you're looking at uh, um, chelation and, and how you deal with it, it's going to depend on what kind of practitioner that you see. So, and there's different biases with different healthcare practitioner, and there's different people that don't understand the differences. And let me explain what I mean. Like you'll go and see one practitioner and say, "Oh, you you don't need to worry. You can get rid of heavy metals with uh, Corellia, or you can take zeolite, or you can take some natural substance, and that'll get rid of everything," which is not necessarily accurate. Or someone else saying, "Well, chelation is this, it's safe. It's been used forever. It's no problems with it. So, um, yeah, you, you should have no issues and don't worry about it. It's more important to get these metals out." And then you can have um, another opinion where, no, you know, you really have to be concerned with chelation. And then, you know, so there's these different biases that, that are out there with different practitioners based on each practitioner's own biases and, and how they think of a condition, how they look at things. So all I can do with you is share with you what I know and kind of give you my biases and tell you um, what the pros and cons are for each way of looking at this. Because as a, as a practitioner who works with a lot of chronic disease and works with a lot of patients with neurological disorders and works with a lot of patients with autoimmunity, you know, it's really important to take a very thorough evaluation of um, how chemicals and toxic compounds may be impacting their health and physiology and, and how to address that in a proper way to reduce the risk and give them the best benefit. So we'll say there's, when, I, when I've looked at this, um, I think there's a place for it and there's a place where it should not be used. And that's the ultimate question. Now, before we get into should you use chelation, not use chelation, um, just realize as a review, some chemicals we can clear without chelation. Um, these are these are chemicals that can be metabolized by our liver and by our microbiome into end products that we can excrete out of our system. And those are called biotransformable chemicals. And then there's chemicals that cannot be biotransformed. And those are typically things like heavy metals. And that's where the chelation argument comes in. And they're two separate things. So if you go on a nutritional botanical detox, you may be able to get rid of the biotransformable chemicals, but you may not be able to get rid of the heavy metals. So that's that's the key thing. And um, the natural things like Corellia or even zeolite, they're not very effective chelating uh, agents compared to DM, DMPS, DMSA, EDTA for actual like levels of high amounts of lead in the body or mercury and so forth. Now, in order to realize what the, the appropriate approach is, the first place to really start is, is what, what chemicals, what chemicals, how the chemicals are being assessed. So you can measure the load of a chemical, and let's just stick with heavy metals for now, like lead, mercury, arsenic, not, not the biotransformable ones, but the one where chelation may be a, an important thing to consider. So you can measure <clears throat> chemicals in blood. You can do a blood test. You can measure chemicals with what's called a challenge test, where they do a baseline urine analysis. And by the way, you can measure chemicals in urine. And then with a challenge test, what they do is they measure baseline levels of urine, urinary um, toxic chemicals. And then they put a person on a challenge, and the challenge is the chelator, something like DMPS. And then once they get on DMPS or DMSA, depending on the practitioner they're seeing with, they'll do a post-test after the chelating agents, and they'll see if there's an increased level. And if there's an increased level, then they're considered to have a lot of toxic chemicals. So that's, that's the challenge test. 
So you can do a baseline urine test. You can do a urine test with a challenge chelator called a challenge test. You can measure them in blood. There's also hair analysis, but hair analysis um, tends to be highly varied from one lab to the next. It's considered the least accurate type of testing for heavy metals. And uh, for the most part, um, I think I think it's there's there's better options than 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 hair or tissue like you can measure heavy metals in a toenail you can measure heavy metals in, in hair but the reproducibility reliability of it is not as good as the other ones so the most common ones that are used are a challenge test uh, with people that do chelation therapy and then with with typical uh, health with the your average general physician if they're worried about toxicology, they will they would just do measure blood levels of let's say lead or mercury and see if there's an overload. So that's what you typically see happen in the healthcare arena. Now let's talk about the chelation challenge test. So first of all, every single human being on this planet that is going to do a chelation challenge test is going to show up with high amounts of chemicals because the chelating agent is going to pull them out from their tissue, and all of us have some degree of lead, mercury, arsenic. Um, just from the soil, just from the food we consume. We don't always know how to find the source of where these chemicals are coming from because they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. They're in our food chain. They're in our food supply. They're in our vegetables. Um, it's just the way it is. Um, they're in, in our water uh, supply uh, to some level and over time that these things can can build up. And it's been that way since the beginning of time. Uh, if you look at anthropological studies with, with human beings, we've always had some type of chemical load. And our body can function with some degree of chemical load. Um, the point is, when does the body lose the ability to respond and, 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 and react and to not have this load cause health problems? And then if it does, what do you do about it? So when it comes to testing, I would say how you get tested is going to, again, depend on who you see. So if you walk into a conventional healthcare model and feel like you may have had some exposure to a toxic chemical, let's say mercury, they're going to measure a mercury blood test and you may not have levels that are high. And then if you go to the chelation experts, they're going to do a chelation challenge test and for sure you're going to have high levels. So that's one of the things you should know. The minute you walk in to get a chelation challenge test, you should know you should, you're going to have higher levels. The problem we have is that we have some of these people that are chelating, uh, you know, chelators, or I call them heavy metalers, uh, that kind of blame everything that's possible to any health problem that's there to heavy metals. And then they check the patient out, and then they find toxic chemicals with the challenge test, and then they assume that that is the problem for all their health problems. And then they get, the, you know, a treatment protocol, maybe 10 sessions, 15 sessions, maybe somewhere between 100 to $300 a session or even more. And then they're spending several thousand dollars to do go through this chelation therapy model. Um, but the assumption that that's the cause of all their illness is, is, is an issue. And the other concern is that not everyone can actually handle chelation uh, therapy. And, and some people are having potential risk for redistribution of these chemicals, especially, especially if they have a uh, permeable blood-brain barrier. So staying on the topic of just testing, um, how you get tested and where you go for testing and the bias and the benefits of each of these tests are going to give you a clue. Now, blood testing for heavy metals 
is going to be a reflection of how much recent exposure of, let's say, mercury or lead or arsenic you've had. And by recent, meaning in the past past week, past few days. Uh, if, if, you got it, if you got exposed to a high amount of it, uh, it may even be longer than a few weeks or a month. And eventually those toxic chemicals are going to push, in, push into your tissues, especially body fat, and especially bone. And then they'll not show up in serum anymore, but they'll be distributed into your own tissue over time because chemicals have an ionic bond to your own tissue, so they'll distribute into your tissue. And this is also why, like for example, when a lot of women reach menopause and they start losing bone density, their arsenic levels go up like crazy and their lead levels go up like crazy because as they um, lose bone in osteoporosis, levels of lead and arsenic go up because they're being released from the bone loss. They were normally stored in that bone tissue. So when you're looking at blood testing, you're really measuring that window of time where there's been a chemical exposure, but it has not been redistributed and pushed into tissue yet. So this is why um, a lot of people will not have serum levels that show uh, an issue, but will will clearly show a pattern when they do a chelation challenge test, where they actually take a chelator to push this stuff out of their tissues and into their urine. So. Um, those are the key things to think about when you're doing laboratory testing. There's also another mechanism of measuring chemicals, which is totally different, which is looking at chemical antibodies. So you can have antibodies to mercury. Mercury and lead and arsenic and these heavy metals can actually bind to proteins in your own body. Uh, one of them, the most common one is albumin, which is the most abundant protein in your blood. And when mercury or lead binds to albumin or um, in your blood, it then creates a new protein, a new antigen, and then the immune system makes antibodies against them. And these antibodies can be measured with a blood test. So labs uh, can measure chemical antibodies. And that's an immune response against a chemical. Okay, And that's different than like a recent exposure. So the best way to think about testing is I would say you can use hair, but it's unreliable and not reproducible from a lab to lab. It's, your, it's not really worth doing. Uh, you have urinalysis, which can measure how much you're clearing out in a recent window. You can do a challenge test with urinalysis, meaning urine, they measure urine levels of heavy metals. And that's called the chelation challenge test. And most people, almost everyone, is going to show positive with that. Uh, so that's measuring how the chelating agents are actually pushing chemicals out of your body. And you would expect those to go up with the challenge test. And then you can measure blood levels, which measures acute exposure. Okay. So that's the first thing you need to understand about how, if you're looking at toxic metal load, you have been evaluated and, and what those factors are. Um, it's pretty much guaranteed if you walk into a chelation therapy center, you're going to get diagnosed with heavy metal toxicity and need to do chelation. It's, it's pretty much 100%, uh, 90%, let's say. <laughs> now, one of the issues we have, one of the things that I've seen in my practice uh, over 20 plus years is that there are people who actually get really, really sick when they do chelation therapy. And despite the fact that, chem that heavy metals and chemicals are bad for us, um, pulling them out of the tissue and, and even more, more concerning, redistributing them in vulnerable tissue can be a problem. So there has to be some degree of health that a person should have before they immediately just try to consider doing chelation therapy. Theoretically, you know, we all want to reduce our toxic load. It would be a good idea for all of us to have a healthy liver and microbiome biotransformation pathways to get rid of a group of chemicals and ideally it'd be nice for us to be able to pull metals out of our tissues 
with chelation, but the only problem with that is that it can redistribute. So that's why, you know, it's not for everyone because there's always that risk factor. Now, um, and that risk factor has been published. When people tell you that's just an animal's, you have to, you have to immediately know that that person telling it's only an animal study is that they have no idea how research works because there's some study, there's some clinical study questions you can't do in humans because of ethics review boards. So of course, redistribution is only going to be in animal studies. So if they're citing you that it's only an animal study, that's not the same in humans. They, they basically don't understand the, the concept of creating a proper research model for the question you have and the ethics involved with that. There's actually some ethics issues with it, using distribution in animals, but they've been done. In any case, um, my concern with chelation therapy with, with patients that I consult with and, and work with is, are they healthy enough? Like if someone has a breached blood-brain barrier, they have blood-brain barrier permeability, they have intestinal permeability, they have uh, autoimmunity, they're chronically inflamed. They have high amounts of oxidative stress. Uh, they don't have a healthy antioxidant system. Adding a chelating agent to their system to pull out chemicals and redistrib potentially redistributing those, those toxic compounds to the other vulnerable tissues can be a problem. And this is not uncommon. Uh, if you're a healthcare professional, I'm sure you have heard patient after patient, some saying, yeah, I went through chelation therapy and I couldn't tolerate it. I totally fell apart. I got worse. Or my autoimmunity got much worse after that. Or after three sessions, uh, I started to have new neurological symptoms that took place. So that's those are some of the concerns. Now, at the same time, there could be a time and place where you may want to get rid of chemicals as quickly as possible so it doesn't store in your tissue. So um, for me, if, if I ever saw someone that had high levels of blood lead, mercury, that means they're having those toxic chemicals in their blood and it hasn't distributed into their tissues well yet. So uh, if the person didn't have any health issues or blood brain barrier, probably any of those things, then you can definitely you know, consider doing uh, um, some DMPS, EDTA, and EDTA. That's what I would do for myself, for example, because I know it's going to very quickly and effectively bind to those toxic compounds before it gets a chance to distribute my tissue, and it's the most effective way to, to get rid of those as soon as possible. But if I had <clears throat> recent head trauma, I had blood-brain permeability, uh, <clears throat> I had some kind of <clears throat> severe flare-up of neural, like an autoimmune disease, I'd be very hesitant to do that. And I may just switch to <clears throat> a scenario like that, where I have high levels of toxic compounds in my body, just using something like IV glutathione, intravenous glutathione. And intravenous glutathione does several great things. First of all, it has binding properties. It's not as powerful as a chelator as DMPS, DMSA, and EDTA, but it does have some chelation properties. And then glutathione also helps heal the blood-brain barrier, helps heal the gut barrier, so it decreases the risk of vulnerable tissues to get redistribution. And some people have chemical immune reactivity to chemicals where they have these high antibodies, and glutathione helps support, support regulatory T cells. So if a patient's vulnerable or you know, a person's vulnerable, it may be a better idea to use IV glutathione than IV chelation. Now, what about natural oral glutathione or supplements, things like N-acetylcysteine um, to raise glutathione? Yeah, those things are probably a good idea too in combination, but the load you'll get with glutathione uh, won't be... Uh, nearly any as much as if it was an IV, IV therapy. But you can use oral compounds. And probably the best way to raise glutathione naturally is with just simple N-acetylcysteine um, itself. If you can get access to trisomal, uh, liposomal glutathione, uh, liposomal glutathione is a very good way, yeah, I would say, better than acetylcysteine. 
um, to raise glutathione levels. So uh, a really safe way to do it with normal people is to have them do IV glutathione if that's accessible to them and that's something they can do with a practitioner in their, in their area. And then also take things like liposomal glutathione, take things like N-acetylcysteine. You can also take things like vitamin C and selenium, other substrates to help to help raise glutathione. By the way, we have a lot of articles that discuss these types of strategies and this concept at Dr. K News, which is my main website where I share articles and information. So if you haven't checked out Dr. K News, drknews.com, please check that out. And we have some other talks on various topics like biotransformation and raising glutathione in our, in our um, YouTube page. And if you're following our talks on Facebook, you'll always get links to um, our talks. So please follow us as well. But in any case, there's some more information about glutathione in some of the resources that, that we've already made, so I don't want to get into that. But NAC, glutathione, liposomal glutathione are good ways to, to, to raise your glutathione levels. Um, and that may be something you do first, even for a period of time, even, even if you're considering chelation therapy. Um, now, an ideal scenario would be to measure blood-brain barrier permeability, measure intestinal permeability, measure chemical antibodies, and make sure that those are all normal before you jump into DMPS EDTA. So blood-brain barrier antibodies can be measured with something like S100B. Um, Cyrex Labs also measures, uh, they have a panel called the rate number 20, which measures blood-brain barrier antibodies. They also have a Cyrex rate 2, which measures intestinal barrier, barrier permeability. And they have a panel called chemical uh, um, Cyrex rate 11, which measures chemical antibodies. And I have a relationship with Cyrex. I work with them. I consult with them. So I do have a bias. I think they're a fantastic lab and they've really done a great job to really develop these profiles that uh, can help look at some of these questions. And other labs have, have the various testing as well. I, but in my, in my office, I, I use Cyrex because it's who I work with. But that's how I would normally in my practice check. So I would check to see if they have blood brain barrier permeability, intestinal permeability. Do they have any chemical immune reactivity? And if they do, then I'd be very concerned having them jump into chelation therapy. If those things get resolved, that they can heal their blood-brain barrier, heal their gut barrier, they're not reacting to chemicals because their immune system is healthier. And the way you get your immune system to not react to chemicals is to improve what's called immune tolerance. And we've done a talk on immune tolerance in the past. It's in our YouTube library. And I have some articles on immune tolerance at Dr. K News. And we even have an online program that teaches you how to use diet and lifestyle to, to improve your immune tolerance. Um, and that might be important to do if, you're, if, if, if a person is having chemical, chemical antibody reactions. So um, if they get to the point where um, the blood-brain barrier is intact, their, their leaky gut is not an issue, it's a, the barrier, intestinal barrier is intact, they don't have any chemical antibodies, then I think it's if they wanted to consider doing chelation therapy, they would be in a situation that's safe. It would still be a good idea to raise glutathione levels and do some uh, strategies to, to change that before you start, but um, that's going to be based on what the practitioner and the patient decide to do, and there's going to be some uniqueness in that. So that would be the key thing I would, that I would want to point out with that. So in the big picture, when you're kind of looking at heavy metals and you're looking at this toxicity load, the key principles to understand, and I'm going to repeat these and then, then I'll jump into questions here, is how is the chemical being tested? Blood is going to just measure acute levels of recent exposure. At some point, those will store in body tissue, and then you won't show, they won't show up in blood. So whenever you see blood, you know you have an acute exposure. Um, urine is going to measure acute exposure, a challenge that's just going to push chemicals out of your tissues, which uh, are going to reflect on a challenge test. 
And then if chelation therapy is recommended, you really want to make sure that the blood-brain barrier is intact, the gut barrier is intact, regulatory T-cells work, um, and uh, the, the sense of immune tolerance is there. Just doing chelation in a very vulnerable patient may be a very bad idea. So those are the, the key principles that you know I can try to share with you in a kind of Facebook setting like this. My wonderful wife, Dr. Reyes, is here. Hi. And, and by the way, thank you all for for joining us and uh, thanks for everyone letting us know you're here. It's so cool to see people from different countries and uh, anyways, thank you. All right. Okay, you ready? Yes, let's go through okay. questions. Okay, so first from Linda. So um, her husband has Hashimoto's, he okay. was chelated Okay. and now he's uh, with for high lead and now he has restless leg. Right. Is there anything so you can um, suggest for her or she's, he's not, he's just in, I think not great shape. Right. So I would like to say a few things first. First of all, I really don't think people that are chelating have any bad intentions in any way. I think most people that are chelating are trying to do the best thing. And, you know, the research on redistribution and chemicals is still light. I mean, there's only about half a dozen, 10 papers um, on it. So, um, you know, it's not really a medical malpractice issue. It's just that if you're working with really vulnerable people, there are some concerns that these things may take place because some of the early studies showing that these redistribution mechanisms can be a factor. But as a practitioner working with really vulnerable and chronic patients, uh, you know, you really want to take some of those research very seriously because, you know, when you work with really chronic and sick patients, um, there's no room for them to, to have further oxidative stress and have some further health issues. So um, to make it very clear, I think every doctor that's doing chelation, I think that I've ever met and experienced and talking to, they just don't understand some of this early research or, and for the most part, they really think that it's helping patients. And for some patients, it really is. If they can reduce their chemical load and they have an acute exposure and they can get those out, it can have a positive impact. So chelation therapy is not all bad. It has a role, but it also has the, the effect of redistribution. So we don't really know if, um, if the chelation therapy was a factor. So let me give you a possible scenarios if, if a patient in a clinical scenario, and these are all theoretical, we can't really know if one's there or not. One possibility is that um, person, their husband had Hashimoto's now has restless leg, is that the Hashi, they had Hashimoto's, they went to chelation, the blood-brain barrier was breached, some of those chemicals injured their basal ganglia, and um, there's an area in the basal ganglia that has a homuncular distribution with the feet. Uh, it's in the super top uh, 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 parietal lobe area, and that parietal lobe area has a homunculus with areas of the basal ganglia, and if that area starts to get injured, you can get things like restless leg. Um, that's a theoretical model uh, that really hasn't been proven or shown, but it's, it's theory that that could happen. Um, another common mechanism could be unrelated chelation itself is a lot of people that have Hashimoto's have GAD65 antibodies and GAD65 antibodies bind to glutamic acid decarboxylase, which is also in the basic ganglia, the area that when injured can cause um, um, things like restless leg syndrome or some kind of movement disorder. There's also the possibility that it had nothing to do with chelation. Um, the most common cause of restless leg syndrome in adults is actually getting a little small, little silent stroke, a little vascular infarct. Um, the blood vessels that supply the basal ganglia, the area where involved restless leg, are, are very tiny and are very vulnerable to hypertension and some, some spikes. So it could just be, it was just a timeline that was going to happen from high blood pressure or those things anyways. So those are all the different variables. So um, you really can't deduce that that chelation therapy caused that. However, 
you know, since there is some redistribution, this is, this is the whole principle of making sure the blood-brain barrier is intact, their immune system is healthy, and everything's intact before they jump into chelation therapy. Like, for example, if I'm working um, with dietitian lifestyle, trying to help a patient with an autoimmune disease get healthier, I would really want to make sure they have some degree of health and management of their autoimmunity yeah, and remission before they even consider that kind of therapy would never be, let's say, the first thing that I would do. And that's just that's just a personal clinical experience um, perspective, but it's not like that's the way you should be done. There's no standard of medicine protocol for how chelation therapy should be used or, or not be used and so forth. So that's, I think that's where the, the level of frustration is. So I don't think you will ever really know what happened, but there's multiple mechanisms that are there and some have nothing to do with uh, chelation. Anything to be done? Anything to be done. Sorry. Well, you really want to make sure, first of all, uh, your husband doesn't have hypertension, and it's not it's, if it's not uh, if it's controlled, and if they have hypertension, it's not and it's, and it's not being managed properly. Uh, you should get a brain scan, see if there's any microvascular disease, because little tiny infarcts can cause that stroke. And at that point, the goal the goal is to really um, make sure the next little tiny stroke doesn't happen. And uh, the key things with uh, basal ganglia, and then there's different therapeutic strategies to potentially help with uh, restless leg uh, that may or may not work depending on how their brain responds or not responds to therapy. So you may do complex moves with the leg over and over again, like spelling the alphabet out over and over again over time that starts to redistribute blood flow to the other regions of the brain. But for the most part, um, most of the people that have restless leg are unresponsive to diet, nutrition, and lifestyle, and even and even neurological rehabilitation therapies. But I would, I would still consider um, an approach working with practitioners. The problem is that it's not going to be one single variable. It's not like you just have low iron now and you take iron. You know, there's like a study with people that have low iron have higher rates of restless leg syndrome. But clinically, you never see anyone take iron all of a sudden the restless leg is gone. It's pretty rare that happens. So I don't have a really good answer for you other than you need a really good personalized lifestyle approach to optimize brain function and vascular health and autoimmunity to just go from there. Okay, thank you. So Susan's asking, okay, so the million dollar question is, what do you do when your blood brain barrier is breached? You have lots of tolerance, lots of autoimmunities and super high lead levels. Exactly, that's a real clinical scenario. Yeah. So what do you do? So you would do uh, IV glutathione, you would do um, N-acetylcysteine, you would take liposomal glutathione, you would continue to try to dampen your autoimmunity and, uh, you know, remember, glutathione has some chelating uh, abilities and properties as well. And if you're going to try chelation, and at some point you get your inflammation immunity working well, you would start with a very, very low dose. Make sure you don't have any adverse reactions. Make sure your blood-brain barrier antibodies are normal. Make sure your chemical immune antibodies are normal and go from there. So you can get some chelation effects by raising your glutathione levels. You can get some, you can even, you can even use things like, um, uh, you can also optimize your biotransformation pathways and increase your antioxidant load. So some people have lots of chemicals, have no clinical symptoms because their antioxidants load is 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 greater than their prooxidant load. So they can make you know they have much much more antioxidants. So if someone is eating lots of superfoods like acai and berries and avocados and healthy foods every day, and it's and and is not eating lots of fried food and oxidative stress foods and processed foods, and they're taking lots of dietary let's say supplements. In a theoretical model like that, their antioxidant load would be much more than their than their oxidative chemical load, so they don't have any significant reactions to that tox to that toxic chemical load. So that's what you would have to probably do: increase your chemical, increase your antioxidants, improve your immune tolerance, um, 
make sure your blood brain barrier leaky gut are healthy as possible and then go from there and if you were really concerned with an acute recent level of load that's when you have to kind of do your cost benefit analysis of whether you want to do some oral chelation to get rid of some acute lead levels and when you say lead i mean by blood lead in a chelate in a challenge test is not it's going to show up with everyone most people that test but if you had actual acute levels in lead that would be um, with blood mm-hmm. testing that's when you would really consider um, jumping to some chelating agent sooner than later okay so this is a general question if heavy metal toxicity is suspect in a patient what are the best lab tests to confirm it you probably well, said it but right so, the, so if you suspect heavy metal toxicity you can use blood to determine if it's recent yeah you can also use urine to determine if it's recent they're both going to show up with recent exposures Certain chemicals can only be measured. Certain chemicals are, are measured in blood. You can't measure every chemical in blood. You can measure more in urine. So that's why some people like to measure urine and blood together. Um, you can measure chemical antibodies to see if there's an immune reaction to chemicals, which is a whole different issue. That, that means the chemicals are actually triggering the immune response, which is a big concern for autoimmunity. And then you can also do a challenge test to get an idea of the total load when you get a, when you get a chelator. They're all telling you different things. So in theory, you can do all of them and see what's going on. Um, and for some patients, that may be what they need to do. Um, for some patients, they, um, um, to be quite honest, it's going to really depend on the bias of the practitioners you work with and who you see that will probably give you that answer. For me personally, I like to give those options to a patient. In my office, I tend to... Uh, like to measure chemical. I work with a lot of autoimmune disease patients, so I like to look at chemical antibodies more than anything else. Because if they're high, then I know it's triggering their immune response. Um, and then, for me to even consider referring them out, because it's not within my scope to do chelation therapy, for me to refer them out to buddies of mine to do chelation or people I respected that are good at doing chelation therapy, I would like to have them, uh, you know, have a healthy blood-brain barrier, and and I'd be really concerned if their blood levels of mercury, lead, or arsenic were high. Okay. Anyway, it's not, listen, I don't have the best answer. So what you what you have to, I think, understand when you understand these concepts is it's not a flowchart. It's it's kind of more of a risk-benefit right. analysis. And there is some risk of distribution, oxidative stress when you chelate, and there's people that have more risk than others, and then there's certain benefits when you pull these chemicals out, but not at the expense of redistribution and flaring up a condition. So it's not a golden rule. Every patient has to consider their risk-benefit analysis and uh, determine what the best choice is and maybe knowing that there is even a risk-benefit analysis you're very careful how you respond and you you, you go into this slowly and in, in when you're healthy yep. okay um sorry i said a great one. Oh, so gita's asking are there anti are there any uh signs or symptoms of a patient that would have chemical overload without testing like what do you look what would you look for to have, rather than right. access to testing so you might think of i mean chemical toxicity there's different yeah. degrees acute chemical toxicity is basically a person who all of a sudden loses function they had an exposure they've never been the same immediately after that exposure and that's like an acute chemical toxicity right so they get tired they can't think they can't focus they basically lose all function and they just shut down part of the reason is because Acute chemical loads increase oxidative stress or this pro-oxidants. And these pro-oxidants that destroy tissues really shut down the cell's mitochondria. So there's decreased ability to make ATP or energy in your cells. 
So an acute chemical load will do that to mitochondria, and in the brain, it makes the brain not work so they can't think, they can't focus, they can't concentrate, they can't motivate. It does that to their muscles, they can't move. So whenever you see a timeline of someone all of a sudden crashing and there's some exposure, that's when you start to think there was some kind of acute toxic load. And sometimes it's not just like they walked into a place and mercury fell all over their body or something like that. It could be they started to work in a new environment, and over the next three weeks, they just slowly car declined. So... In a three-week, less than a year window, it's still part of that acute recent model, okay? Um, for people that have chronic and slowly built-up toxic load, um, they're going to be really hard to identify because mm. we all have some degree of built-up no matter what. But it, again, it's our degree of toxic build-up versus our antioxidant and our immune tolerance mechanisms that determine whether we have symptoms or not. But Typically, what happens in the healthcare system is the minute someone has ever been diagnosed with a neurological disease or the minute someone's been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease or just chronic fatigue syndrome, um, there's a group of practitioners that immediately just think that's heavy metal toxicity. And, and that could be so many other things. And the problem with them is they walk into a place that just says the challenge test and they go, whoa, here we are. We're right again. And then, you know, when you look at all the people that actually get chelation therapy, how do you go? It was life changing. It does happen, but it's not as great as you would think. So... Again, it's important therapy for some people, and it has an impact on them that's significant. But for some people, it really isn't the right approach. Okay, Deborah's asking, I've read that glutathione can chelate metals and cause redistribution. What are your thoughts on that? No, there are uh, actually some studies that looked at chemical redistribution of glutathione, and they found that it does not do that. So in order for, for, for glutathione to be able to re redistribute, it has to be able to pull metals uh, intracellularly within the cell. So one of the disadvantages of glutathione is that it can't pull heavy metals and compounds from your tissue. It does not have an intracellular effect. It only has an extracellular effect. So it can only take stuff that's already in your serum or blood. And because of that, it doesn't seem to have the ability to redistribute. What makes uh, DMSA, DMPS, EDTA different is it has the ability to pull compounds from your actual cells, intracellular effect. And that's what allows it to redistribute. So that's why there's it's more effective in actually getting rid of your load, but there's also the concern for redistribution. So glutathione only seems to be having an extracellular effect and no redistribution. Okay. Um, is, there an, Elaine, is there a connection between mercury and Parkinson's? Is chelation okay for Parkinson's disease? Well, that's the thing. So um, every heavy metal is linked to Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, just so you know. If you look in the literature, you're going to find mercury, lead, arsenic, cadmium, <laughs> aluminum, yeah. um, everything. So those things uh, are clearly there. Um, and even things like manganese. Uh, like There's a problem. Manganese, there's manganese 2-plus two, two oxide and manganese 8-plus oxide. The one they're using in industrials... Studies on Parkinson's is manganese, uh, industrial oxidized manganese, not the supplemental mineral manganese. So people understand the difference between those. So that, you know, people sometimes say, "Oh, I should never be taking manganese supplements or things like that." But as far as Parkinson's go, um, Parkinson's disease is is uh, a disease where a protein buildup called alpha synuclein gets built, that then creates a group of dead cells around it called Lewy bodies, and that gets in the way of how neurons transmit information. And then that slowly leads to degeneration. Um, mercury can increase oxidative stress, which promotes all that. But you're not going to remove mercury and reverse Parkinson's disease. That, that'll never happen. So uh, be aware of that. Um, so, and if you have a Parkinson's patient, they can be very, very vulnerable uh, with with heavy metal 
uh, chelating uh, substances, meaning if the blood-brain barrier is already breached, they already have some degree of immune tolerance issues, it could speed it up. It can progress it. So again, cost-benefit ratio. And to be quite honest with you, at the end of the day, you know, in my practice, what I try to share with people is I just try to educate them about all these different variables and let them kind of think and decide what they want to do for themselves because it ultimately is the patient's decision to to to, to know what to do, but they should have informed consent. They should know all the different variables and factors that's there with them. Yeah. So for some patients, they choose that they have neurodegenerative disease and they feel like they have a gut feeling they really should do chelation to get some of this out. Then they go for it. And from other people, they 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 are conscious of it. They do one session. They immediately don't feel any benefits. Maybe even feel worse. Then they stop. The fact that they are conscious of it though does help. Um, Karen, what are your thoughts on sauna? So sauna is. Sauna, sauna, sweating. <laughs> it, it's great. I mean, it's what you know when you look at how chemicals. Um, so remember, there's chemicals that can be biotransformed and chemicals that have to they can't be biotransformed. So all your chemicals that come into your body that your liver can metabolize into end products that you can uh, eliminate through feces, urine, or sweat. Um, theoretically, you're one of the steps of of getting rid of chemicals is once they're biotransformed into a water soluble compound. You eventually sweat it out and and you urinate out. So there's some potential that saunas can help with the that part of it where you're increasing your your elimination of the water soluble compound. But also sauna changes your vascular dynamics and your blood flow and gets circulation going. And those can help with the clearance of chemical compounds. But they can only work if your liver is actually converting them to water soluble compounds. So if your liver doesn't have the ability to, or your microbiome is unhealthy, and your, let's say your liver is just loaded with lots of chemicals and medications, and you don't have antioxidant rivers, and your substrates for sulfation, methylation, and acetylation are terrible, um, you may do sauna, but the sauna can't convert toxic compounds to water-soluble compounds. It just helps circulation and blood flow. So it has a role to play, but it doesn't doesn't substitute for what the liver and microbiome have to do with biotransformation. Once a chelating agent binds to a heavy metal, you still will eliminate it, some of it through urine, sweat, and feces, so it can help with that part of it, but the sauna itself is not going to pull out mercury or lead. Uh, it can only pull it out once it's bind to a compound that uh, changes the ionic structure of it, so it can be eliminated. Okay, Joanna's asking, Great Plains Lab use urine markers test for long-term exposure, like for glycosphates. Do you mm -hmm. use those? Yeah, like Great Plains is a great test. You can you can use a Great Plains test for glyphosate. They also have a pesticide chemical urinary profile, and that can measure um, recent exposures in your body. So it's it's a great way to to measure it um, through your analysis. Okay, Laura's asking, what is your perspective on EDTA chelation for atherosclerosis? Effectiveness, same safety issues. Right. So another concern is people, another way people are using chelators is that they're using chelating agents to bind to calcium deposits and yeah. to clear those out of their system. Um, I don't know if there's a lot of evidence that really supports that. And, and um, I can only tell you, I don't have the experience to answer that question very well because I don't do pre and post imaging studies to look at uh, calcium channel scores and see if that helps. And there isn't much research. If there's research out there, I haven't read it. So I can't. I can't do a good job answering that because I don't work. That's not a big part of my clinical experience. So I can say I don't know. Okay. Um, can someone leak heavy metals while on a diet to lose weight? Celine's asking. Sure. 
So you can get uh, uh, there's the the two main tissues that store toxic chemicals, chemicals you can biotransform, and chemicals you can't biotransform is body fat and bone. Now there's an entire field of research in the field of toxicology where they study what are called obesogens, and obesogens are chemicals that store in body fat. And one of the theories in the obesogen model is that when you get involved with an increased chemical load, it shifts your body into to, to actually increasing your body fat. That some chemicals, most studied one, for example, is bisphenol A, BPA. Mm-hmm. High amounts of plastic products uh, are considered obesogens. And in animal studies, they can feed them BPA and feed in a group of mice BPA, a group of mice without BPA, and then mice that get BPA get fatter with the same caloric intake. And other chemicals have been studied that way, and they're called obesogens, O-B-E-S-O-G-N-S, obesogens. So what they've also found is that if they can, if they do get exposed to chemicals and they are able to increase their body fat, they don't have the oxidative stress and inflammation that it's actually protective for them. So even though it may make them fatter, that the ability to store heavy metals in their body fat that is actually protective. And they've also found, also found when body fat or bone is lost, like an osteoporosis or weight loss, these these chemical compounds then are now redistributed in tissues. And the concern is that they go from body fat to the brain. They go from body fat to organs. So um, so fat tissues seem to play a protective role. And uh, some chemicals increase the load. So you can increase your load with, with a weight loss program too so be aware of that sometimes that's that's part of it okay um so i know when you hear all this stuff it sucks it really like, you're like what am i going to do what are my options <laughs> how do i and to be honest with you you have to kind of figure it out and think through it and uh, look at that risk benefit ratio and figure out how you want to do it that's that's the problem the concern the concern is with healthcare people get stuck in their little fixes and their little theories and they don't understand the the big picture, so they they may have an adverse reaction. They're not putting the right strategy because they don't understand these things. Like you could have a person just trying to detox, but that's not going to change biotransformation. You can have a person trying to take herbal products, but that's not going to get rid of lead. It's stuck in the tissue. Um, you could have someone that has very high amounts of lead. They have no reaction. Someone that has very low amounts of lead. They have reaction because of their healthy antioxidant system. You could have someone that has two people that have very low levels of mercury, but one has mercury antibodies that are high during their inflammatory response because they've lost their immune tolerance. Those are all the real physiological variables. Right. Yeah. Everyone's different. Everything. It's no, Just, there's all these different things that are out there. Yeah. 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 Okay. Speaking of that, John Allen's asking, have you have been mentioning a lot about having enough antioxidant reserves? Yes. So is this concept then making sure that our antioxidant is always greater than our pro-oxidant. Yes. And that will always, and that will always make us less react to things. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. And this is across the board for okay. neurodegenerative diseases, cardiovascular diseases, uh, chronic inflammation, autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. If you have more antioxidants than pro-oxidants, you have a protective effect. Uh, you have a you have a condition where you prevent disease. Uh, progression, whether it's heart disease or neurodegenerative disease, so that's why it's so critical. And, and listen, it's not—it's it's not really that complicated. When people eat healthy amounts of foods with tons of antioxidants in there and avoid foods that cause more free radicals, like fried food and healthy food, uh, processed foods, and people that are nutrient deficient in substrates the body needs um, to help make antioxidants, like vitamin C, vitamin E, vitamin A, from healthy diet, 
they have more risk for chronic diseases that are inflammatory, like cardiovascular disease, like neurogenitive disease, like autoimmune disease, like arthritis. So um, this is why it's so important to have a very healthy antioxidant diet lifestyle and even consider taking antioxidants. And lots of research that's been prospective over a period of time has showed taking antioxidants and is very good for you. And then when they do epidemiological studies where they look at cultures where they have lots of green tea, which is loaded with antioxidants, or even coffee, or even lots of vegetables and fruits that are very high in this, they have significantly less chronic inflammatory diseases than groups that don't. Yeah. Okay. So Deborah's asking, can the antibodies you talked about be tested with Quest or LabCorp? Which labs are good to order the chemical antibody tests? So I know Lab and Lab LabCorp Quest are conventional medical laboratories in the U.S. that they're only measuring levels; they're not measuring the actual antibodies. Uh, the lab I'm using for antibodies is uh, Cyrex, so they measure the chemical antibodies. Um, there could be other labs that are doing it, but that's the one I've been using, um, and I consult and work with them, so I have a bias towards using them. <laughs> okay, very good. Okay, um, someone's asking about using zeolite. Okay, can zeolite, a lot of questions, um, remove aluminum, benzene from the brain, and does it really have the affinity and capacity to clear the blood-brain barrier? What, just what are your thoughts? What are the downsides so of it? So zeolite is a compound that has the ability to impact an ionic charge, so it can work as a chelating agent, just like sulfur can, okay? So the key thing is that, um, the key thing is that, uh, it's not going to pull stuff from tissue. It's not going to have intracellular effect. It's not going to like, zeolite's not going to cross your blood-brain barrier, get into your neurons and pull stuff out and then dig it out. That's, that's, not, that's not shown yet. <laughs> so, but since it has the ability to ionically bind to things, then uh, it has some chelating property potential and it's, it's something you can consider taking if you feel like you have some exposure and you want to reduce your load. So. I don't think there's been, I don't know of any large clinical trials on zeolite, but the property of the compound gives it all the criteria needs to be a chelator. Okay, so a lot of people are asking, would you just check heavy metals with someone who's diagnosed with MS, ALS, like just different, would you, would that be a, something you would Would you check heavy metals with people that have chronic disease and neurological disease? Yeah, they can listen, MS, ALS, <sighs> Parkinson's, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So the, so the question is, depends. Because <laughs> right. listen, every patient that comes in that is trying to figure out a strategy to deal with a chronic disease with diet, nutrition, lifestyle, and how they're trying to handle it from, let's say, a functional medicine approach, they all have, um, there's time issue. If it's progressive and going mm -hmm. fast, are you wasting your time going that, that, that first? There's also a cost issue. Um, so from, from, from my practice, um, I'll let the patient decide. I go one approach is to kind of test everything and kind of see what all the big factors, big, big, the variables are that may be promoting a chronic inflammatory condition, and maybe we'll we'll measure um, urine, uh, pesticides, and chemicals that are biotransformable. We'll check chemical antibodies, um, check blood levels, see if there's any acute levels. If they want to go deeper, then make sure they can get a challenge test done, and that's one option. But for me, I don't tend to do it first because. Um, I like to work on their gut barrier, their immune tolerance, their diet, their lifestyle first, and then move into those kind of things down the road. So um, this is, once again, this is where cost-benefit comes in, but it's in relation to cost and where you want to jump in with your clinical strategy. Meaning if someone comes in with, 
let's say, a neurodegenerative disease and their diet and lifestyle is already terrible. Like they mm-hmm. have a, they have like, they, you can tell they have a chronic inflammatory disease. They even have celiac. They're still eating gluten. They're just inflamed all the time. Um, <laughs> then going after heavy metals, not, it's not the time to do it. You want to try to address those first. Versus someone who comes in and has a perfect diet, a clean diet, everything is healthy. They just don't know what's going on. That would maybe, maybe lean, lean you more towards starting with metals first or toxic chemicals or pesticides first. Okay, Sean's asking a very good question. If one cannot afford chelation, right? Shoot, hold on. For chelation, can one slowly eliminate, eliminate intracellular heavy metals via other means? If so, what's the slow, slow, low, safe, long game approach? The, the safe, low, long approach is to prevent things from storing up in tissue. Is to uh, increase your glutathione levels, and you can use things like zeolite, for example, any kind of natural ionic binding compounds have the ability to do that. So that's your best, safest approach. And also if your glutathione levels and antioxidants are healthy, it's less likely your gut barrier and blood-brain barrier breach. And, you're, and one of the key things that really makes toxic compounds a real serious issue is when your antioxidant levels go down and your gut permeability is breached. So now you get systemic uh, uh, exposure through your, in, through your uh, intrahepatic blood circulation to the rest of your body and the most vulnerable tissue for heavy metals of the brain. So I would say, you know, take a lot of NAC, take a lot of antioxidants, take a lot of glutathione, and go from there. Yeah. That's the strategy our, our family does, because we know we're getting toxic exposure no matter what, but we can at least reduce our barrier breakdown and be less reactive to the chemicals we know are gonna build up in our tissue just from environment. Okay, Tim, what do you think of porphin testing as a safer alternative to chelation challenge tests? I know some people do porphin testing to kind of look at uh, that immune response. I just uh, don't don't think uh, that they're measuring the same thing, so I don't think it can be used as a substitute. Okay. Um, la la la. So people are asking if you do a talk on liver. Liver. We may have done a talk on liver. I feel, I can't even remember anymore. <laughs> we have toxic chemicals getting into our brains. So we can't remember. Don't say stuff like that. Bring glutathione on you. Okay. Um, if one experiences intense allergic reaction to DMPS, like itchy lesions, what's the next best alternative for mercury chelation? Well, there's only, I mean, when you look at uh, chelating agents, the ones that have the strongest effect, the ones that are done by prescription, are EDTA, DMPS, and uh, DMSA. The, the most reactive one is EDTA. The second most reactive one uh, is uh, DMSA. DMPS is the safest. What does she do? DMPS? I, it's oh. totally if you did DMPS, you've already done like the least reactive one. However, there can be individual uniquenesses um, that may be involved. And it's also possible that it wasn't that. You just had the skin inflammatory reaction unrelated to other things while you did that. Or uh, you, were pulling, uh, you were pulling chemicals into your system and you didn't have enough oxidative antioxidant support while that was happening. And your mast cells dysregulated, and you start to react to things in your environment, so the skin reaction. So you, it it could be that you may use, need a different chelator. It could be that you're not fit enough to do chelation yet. Maybe mm-hmm. you have too much inflammation. Maybe your immune system is too dysregulated to handle it. But uh, those are things to consider. Okay. Um, what? You were here at that one. Sorry. Um, let's see. Would non-epileptic seizures or dystonic movements also be in the realm of the restless leg? And what type of testing and therapies could be done? 
Yeah, so all, all type of mood disorders where you have involuntary mood disorders involve an area of the brain called the basic ganglia. And uh, and if it's hyperkinetic moving, it's moving in a zone, it's 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 uh, indirect pathway of the basic ganglia. And most common cause of that in adults uh, will be a mini-stroke, a stroke or lesion. Okay, Jonathan's asking, can one overdo taking too many antioxidant foods slash supplements? Can you overdo, t- overdo t- taking too much antioxidants? Not really. It's just expensive. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> antioxidant supplements and food extracts can add up, you know, some of the uh, things no, are expensive. Anything. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you're going to like get so pro-oxidative that you're going to have health problems. Uh, and we're dealing with so much oxidative stress that if you're taking a handful of different pomegranate extract, a psychic extract, resveratrol, turmeric every day, and taking a multivitamin, ACE, taking things like that and eating a healthy diet, you're not going to overload. You're going to just probably get what you need. <laughs> We're, yeah. All of us are all facing with modern society, um, with the way uh, our environment's been changed, that we're going to have a chemical environmental inflammatory load. And the more uh, strategies we have to to deal with that, the better we are. Okay, one last question. And by the way, thank you for all coming. And if you can, please share this with people because I got to tell you, this issue with chelation yeah. is not uh, is not getting out there. We have way too many people that don't understand these risk-benefit relationships. And uh, a lot of people are being thrown into chelation when they shouldn't uh, be thrown into it. So um, I've been trying to get this message out for over 10, 15 years teaching, but it's not getting out there. So if you can please uh, get it out there, that would be fantastic. What's What's the message you're trying to get out there? Share the link of this talk, <laughs> and uh, if you if you want and, and if you want to follow us, please follow us on our Facebook page. Okay. okay next. Last one. Um, bummer. Uh, should lipos- should uh, antioxidants be liposomal or is that not necessary? Antioxidants don't need to be liposomal. The only reason glutathione does is that glutathione is a large tripeptide, very large amino acid, and. Uh, it's a, sulfur, it's a very large sulfur amino acid, so it's hard for the to get through the gastrointestinal tract. So the advantage of liposomal is it just allows that large amino acid compound to get through the gut. Most antioxidants don't need, like turmeric, resveratrol, uh, those types of or natural food products do not need uh, the liposomal response to, to, to get absorbed. They have their effect on the gut right away. Okay, well, thank you, everyone. Uh, I hope... Uh, this information was useful to you and thank you for joining us again and uh, um, have a great day. You can find all of this information and more at drknews.com slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have, and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. 
To learn more about Dr. Karazian's disclosures and the companies he advises, please visit drknews.com forward slash about.